Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes people with just fascinating stories. Today's guest is Donald Wiggins, an attorney and an advocate for prison reform, expanding voting rights, and restorative justice. He is working to get prisoners the right to vote, not only in his home state of Ohio, but across the nation. He also wants to lower the voting age to 16. Additionally, Wiggins also is pushing for major prison upgrades. Donald, you've spent the bulk of your career as a a lawyer and an advocate, and one of the areas of advocacy that you look at is prison reform. Uh, First of all, tell us why we should care about that as a general population. Thanks, Tom, for having me and for bringing this matter to the forefront of your listeners' mind in peripheral just so they can begin to explore and understand the importance of the issue I'm going to talk about. I think the best way for me to answer your question is to tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up as a child in New York City housing, a project or a housing development, as they are properly called, called Latimer Gardens. And Latimer Gardens had a very interesting but not unique construction and design. If I paired my head slightly to the right outside of my bedroom window, I would be able to see all the development that was happening in Flushing. A condo that was going up across the street for fair market value, uh, event space in the other direction, the street that was opposite, a pool hall, a store, cars, life, progress, hope, innovation. Now, if I walked about 25, 30 feet, into my living room, and I looked out that window, what did I see? Three other buildings, three other bleak, bland, beige housing buildings where citizens, everyday citizens, taxpaying citizens, were working, doing their best. It is not the matter of meritocracy. They're lazy or incapable or incompetent. Surely, market forces of how much rent, how much housing, food, groceries, transportation, and everyday life in New York City cost led them to live in housing, to be able to provide for their families, to grow, 
to pursue their version of the American dream. But in looking out that living room window, what did you see? A playground and only the view of others, only the view of those who exist within those three buildings. Now, this may not sound unique, but it is. What makes it unique is the way in which housing projects or housing developments, as they are properly called, are constructed is eerily and very similar to that of the way prisons are constructed. Sentry towers, so there's a central courtyard. Everyone can be monitored who's outside, see what's happening, cut off from the rest of the world. So it requires a unique perspective. It requires the instillment of values, values which are often hidden, obstructed, or not known to the individuals who were there, but they have to be embedded, embedded through an education system, embedded through parents, embedded through community members, embedded through job opportunities, which often are lacking, are in a state of dilapidation, are in a state of array within the institutions, within the systems, within the stakeholders who provide those resources to individuals living within that area. Now, what does this have to do with the prison system and specifically with Ohio's prison system? When I became an attorney and I walked into Ohio's prisons, about the third time in that I was visiting a client, something happened to me. I almost separated from myself is the best way in order for me to explain it. And I was reminded of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. There is a line in the poem that goes, and in a moment, I seen my greatest moment flicker in the eternal footman snicker. And I was afraid. And the reason that line came to mind was because I began to look around, not just at my client, but the other individuals who were having visits either from their counselors or from family members or from friends, be it white, be it black, Sinu, Jew, whatever the case may be. And what I seen in their eyes, it wasn't a matter of guilt or innocence. It wasn't a matter of I've done something wrong and I'm here to be accountable to my community or to the system. What I seen was a reflection of myself. I seen with one wrong footstep here, one misstep there, one misgiving here, lack of opportunity there. That too could be me. And then I began to say, if that could be me, then don't we have an obligation to give ourselves hope, a second chance, another window, the window that was in my room, the window that if you paired slightly to the right, you've seen hope, and innovation, and progress, and not the window that was in the living room. And that's why I work on the issue. I know this has become a very personal issue for you. And a lot of people who are sensitive to this kind of opportunity and, and reconstruction of individuals However, I would say the bulk of the population would say, hey, you know, these people committed crimes, you know, they should be punished and that the penal system or the prison system should be 
a punishment, not a, a country club, uh, not not anything like that. How do you talk to people who think that way? How do how do you change their minds? By turning the question around and asking, who are we punishing? The individual that committed the crime, the community, the family and friends that they leave behind, the taxpayer who funds the prison system that continues to grow while yet until inflation is running away, although that is a short-term problem. Who, who's being punished? So my question to you, Tom, uh, would be even be, who are we punishing? Are we really punishing the perpetrator and the individual we found guilty, or are we punishing ourselves? And if we are punishing the perpetrator, then should we not have a more exacting system that aims to reduce recidivism, that seeks to make the community whole that they leave behind or that they left in ruin or damaged, that seeks to be restorative and transformative, and that seeks to prevent these problems from occurring again. So the criminal justice system or the prison system in of itself should be viewed as a piece of criminal justice, as a piece of criminal behavior transformation, not as a punishment, because life in of itself is a punishment when you think about it. It can be a cruel experience to be born, to, have, to go through life, figuring out what is this, who am I, what is the purpose that I'm here for, how do I create a sense of self and identity How do I thrive and then still comply with rules, which may be the antithesis to what I believe or to who I am? So we are working through varying levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs towards self-actualization, fulfillment, with very little guidance, depending on where you, where you were born, who you were born to, and what boils down to the genetic lottery. So who are we punishing? So being a former judge and an attorney like you, I, I know that the public has misconceptions of the correction system. Um, I've seen it over the years as a warehouse, uh, a brutal warehouse, uh, a, a place where I don't feel that any inmate is safe. Uh, from uh, violence or or um, mental and physical uh, abuse. Uh, could you paint a picture for our audience of what the prison is like? I, I've given my perceptions, but but what is a, a daily life like there? What happens there? What are we trying to reform? Great question. And I believe you're, the picture you have painted is spot on. Each institution is different. We have institute, about 24 prisons within the state of Ohio. And please don't quote me on the number. Public ones. We're not referring to the private ones. In those public institutions, they have been built 
at varying points of time over the last 30 to 40 years. And they have not maintained upgrades, maintenance, design standards, social, environmental, physical, and financial systems and sustainability in order to create an environment which houses individuals in a humane and constitutional manner and also seeks to achieve whatever the ends, and we can disagree as to what that may be, is of the correctional institution system here. And so most prisons being older, such as Lebanon Correctional Institution and Warren Correctional Institution, which was just approved for close to a $10 million plumbing upgrade, has suffered for a long period of time, close to a decade, of environmental depredation. And quite frankly, I would say environmental abuse. And I'm not going to use the word environmental abuse in the legal sense, but in the contextual feeling, social psychological sense. We're talking about water that smells like rotten eggs or methane. Or I'm using the word methane. If you ask someone who's incarcerated, they would probably say, take the first letter of the acronym sugar, honey, iced tea. Yeah. And that will be the description of what they say it smells like. Water that's sometimes brown. You have do not drink advisories, so to speak. And it is not an official advisory that says do, does not, do not drink. It is the pipes are being flushed. So you may experience water quality that is not too, or you may experience water quality that while not regulated under primary standards, they are secondary standards, taste, color, smell. It's safe to drink. So essentially, you're giving people a mixed signal of the water is not going to look, smell, or taste like, some, like something you would expect, a.k.a. water. Instead, it's going, it may look, smell, or taste like feces, rotten eggs. Take your pick. Don't drink it if you want. It's safe, but this is just what it is, and technically it's legal. The alternative is you can buy water. Let's talk about the price in commissaries. I've heard complaints from individuals who are incarcerated that the prices are usury. Three, four, or five dollars for a bottle of water. On top of that, you limit the number of bottles of water that an individual can have because more than a certain number of bottles of water is considered contraband. So if you put it in your footlocker, if you store it in your housing unit, then that's considered contraband. You have a lack of lighting. You have an overcrowding population. Imagine 30, 40, maybe 50 people within a dorm unit if there are stacked beds, unless it's a single cell, depending on the construction. You're not seeing it outside, and if so, you're seeing it through a barred window. Heating and cooling. During the winter months, it can be extremely cold. During the summer months, it gets extremely hot. There's no AC units in every prison. There's not cooling units in every prison. People think, oh, well, you did something to land yourself in jail, so that's A-OK. -okay. 
But I mean the same the arsonists, the murderers, the rapists, the your everyday grand larceny individuals, your car thieves, your individuals who are dealing marijuana or fentanyl or cocaine, although it may have been for a good purpose, setting that aside, are all within the same conditions. So regardless of the crime, once you are sentenced to prison, you're now placed in deplorable conditions, which for many individuals are similar to the same hellscapes that they grew up in or that they lived in. So what value are you transmitting to them? Life in prison is like a continuation of the same hellscape, except the only value that we as a society and we as a criminal justice system and the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections is transmitting is to be compliant, follow the rules. If you survive, great. If you don't, oh well. And if you do survive, make sure you don't get caught. You don't teach people the skills that are necessary in order to be able to not land back in prison. You don't reintegrate them into society in a way that prevents them from prevents them from taking the actions that they may have been there. You don't create a transformative paradigm within their mind. You instead just put people on top of one another in hot conditions with lack of conflict resolution skills, subpar food conditions, water that is doesn't even look like water and should technically be illegal, but it is legally not. So the changes we're going for, it, it, it's a systematic failure and it is taking individuals who are in the worst spots in their life and being exposed to every caveat, exception, exemption, and gray area within the law. From our secondary contaminant levels, meaning that smell, taste of water, which are advisory, meaning your water should smell like nothing and it should taste like water, shouldn't really have a taste, good pH balance. Those are not standards or primary standards which are enforceable and in the case that you can be sued for them or a water utility can actually be sued for them. And that's in the public. So let's 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 move forward and just one quick question. You've mentioned Ohio and that's I know where you primarily work, but I also know that you're involved uh, on the national scene. Ohio is not unique in these terrible standards. Is that correct? Absolutely. Ohio's not unique. So we have a national problem. Uh, we're perhaps talking about Ohio as a microcosm, but it is a a national issue. So, so let's move to when the person has done their time or uh, received judicial release or or whatever uh, way mechanism they get out of prison. What happens to them then? You know, we've. From your description, we've done nothing but allow them to live in in terrible conditions uh, that are are violent and and not very well monitored, you know. And then we open the door, and what happens then? If they have a it depends. So they can have a family or friend member if they've done their time, they're being released, they're picked up, 
and they are returned to the communities that they came from or go back home to wherever home may be, maybe move if they have a friend or some sort of way to leave the state if that happens. And that's generally not the case. You either return to where you came from, you could go to a family or a friend house, you may have a bus that picks you up or takes you to a general facility or that drops you off at a centralized area. You may be released to a halfway house where you stay for a certain period of time before you transition back into society, in which case you it's more it's prison light, or I'm calling it prison light, check in with the person that's in charge of the halfway house or a parole officer. You may be on post-release control where you are continuing to be monitored, which raises another whole another host of secondary issues with respect to what rights do we have if you've served your time or is Yes, it is properly part of your time under Ohio's uh, constitutional schema, but at the same time, at what point in time are you ever really fully exit from the prison system? What just, is just, just to jump in and explain that, there, there is post-release controls on some people, and, and it used to be in the old days called parole and a parole officer and certain restrictions that you you had to follow. Uh, they may have changed the names, but the concept is still the same, correct? Slightly. Parole is uh, being granted a grace. It could be either from the parole board to be released early and not having fully executed your sentence there's a difference between parole, probation, and post-release control. But but parole even is, if even if someone has done their time, they could still have controls over them. Correct. They would have post-release control, but they've separated the nomenclature between parole and PRC. Right. Be- so, but the the idea is they get out of prison, they go back to their neighborhoods. There's been no um, no change really in in the person or the circumstance. And you talk about recidivism. Well, recidivism is going back into prison or back into the judicial system after you've uh, been in it once before. You know, this seems to be a, a petri dish for recidivism, sending somebody back without any change. A hundred percent agree. So, so what's being done about that? Anything? I mean, we, we're shocked at the recidivism rate, but why should we be shocked as, as a populace? We should be shocked because we're paying for it. So uh, we're not, we have roads that need to be repaired, bridges that are collapsing all across the country, infrastructure that needs to be updated, a environmental crisis that is emerging. However you want to look at that or slice that from rising utility rates to water shortages and the coming water wars as to who gets what, how much does it cost, and how do you have access to it? And so as our social, political, and environmental conditions continue to change into what is becoming and what is coming, The likelihood of crime increases, the likelihood of civil unrest increases, and then to send people to prison who are then going to return to the same or more worsening conditions is just adding and furthering the problem. It's throwing fuel, gasoline on a fire. So we should care. And what we should be doing is if we should be worrying about the rule of law here in Ohio, democracy in America, 
And if we want it to persist, and by we, I mean you, me, your listeners, the state legislator, Congress, the whole of the population must begin to tell a new story, a story that builds a legal and a political system which puts humanity first, which says, but for the grace of God, go I. How can we make sure, beginning during the time that you are actually incarcerated, that when you come out, you are coming out to something new, to something better, and you have not been placed into a dilapidating time capsule where your body is kept for a certain period of time, your mind and your social condition and your psychological condition is not built upon or improved. And I believe the way in which we do that is by guaranteeing incarcerated individuals' right to vote. Because I, in America, sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, I I know that you've been working on that. Uh, voting is, is human, a uh, project you've been working on and others uh, similar. Why do you think giving a, a inmate a right to vote is so transformative? Because voting is human. At every point and juncture in American history, when we have bought, brought in a new group and constituency of people into the voting population, into suffrage, what we are saying it is beyond a symbolic statement. It is a major and huge symbolic and significant symbolic statement. But it is also a significant change and shift in the conversation, our political makeup, and what can be. Why we granted African Americans, individuals like myself, my, my ancestors, the right to vote. And it says, I recognize your humanity. I recognize your right to govern this country, to develop your community, to have hope for how you wish to see your state become and develop. Then we granted women the right to vote. And we said, just because of your gender, you too can have a say-so in the conversation and not through your husband or through your brother or through your son, because what you have to say should be heard directly. So by giving incarcerated individuals the right to vote, what we will be doing is recognizing their humanity. We will be saying there are conditions in the institutions which are not either being adequately monitored because the tools do not exist for the monitoring bodies that are in existence to do such or because they are limited or restricted. And because of the current state of being within the institutions and reporting mechanisms for grievances and for concerns to adequately and meaningfully work their way up to the individual or individuals that are necessary in order to bring adequate and meaningful resolve is not in place, it begins to say that individuals who are approximately and directly impacted actually do matter that their votes and their concerns become something that a candidate who's running for office can say, I'm a pro-incarcerated person candidate. I care about the state of how we house people. It begins to recognize them as a constituent and not as a, a thing or an A number, as we have here in Ohio, that is to be housed within this dilapidated time capsule until they are to be released and then returns to whatever conditions may have or are to exist in the neighborhoods that they are going to return to. 
But let's dig a little deeper uh, on this. You know, is a, a, a prisoner, say in Lebanon or Warren, you know, those are two examples that you may uh, gave. Uh, and for the our non-Ohio audience, those are uh, Lebanon is a small community in southwestern Ohio. It's part of sort of a metroplex between Dayton and Cincinnati that sort of merges, but it, it is a unique community in and of itself, a small community. Uh, are people going to be registered in that community? Or are they going to be registered where they came from? Well, you know, if I'm a resident of Lebanon, I'm going to say, hey, all these prisoners are going to select my city council. I don't want that, is what they would be saying, I'm sure. Well, let's back into that. While prisoner gerrymandering is an issue in of itself, where are prisoners counted and who receives funding for where prisoners are counted or how big an area or a county may be is already impacted based upon prisons. Lebanon, which is a very small community, as you mentioned, but the community with you count the individuals that are in the institution and in Lebanon Correctional Institution. At least for census purposes and congressional purposes, can be bigger. So it, it comes down to really where do we want to allocate the vote at the federal, state, and local level? We can allow for individuals to either register to that are incarcerated, register to vote in the local elections in which the institution is placed, or simple remedy, as I would propose, be able to register to vote within the community that they last resided in and like and are likely to return to. And two others, we have two other examples of this in the country. Vermont and Maine both allow for their incarcerated populations to vote. And where are they registered? They can either register in the community in which they were last resided. So if a person is incarcerated in Lebanon and they came from Cleveland, then they would be registered in Cleveland. And I believe, and I have to look back at the law in Vermont and Maine to be exact, there may be an option in one of them to register at the place in which they are incarcerated. But there is definitely an option for them to register where they previously resided. All right. So let's assume for our discussion that this is a, a good idea. And I personally think it is, but let me you know, do the every person, uh, argument, you know, so this is a, a good idea. Uh, do we have to change the constitution? Do we do this by legislation? If we do it by legislation, is it state legislation? And if it's state legislation, how in the hell are you going to get this through a state legislature where anybody who votes for it, they're going to say, Hey, you're weak on crime. You know, that's a, a very interesting question, Tom, and in part because it, it speaks to the American political system and how we have turned tough on crime into a mantra, which is used to propel people into elected office, but it doesn't actually solve crime in of itself. So if we wanted to be tough on crime, then we would be focusing on preventing people from committing crime, improving social conditions, and reducing recidivism. 
So by saying, hey, I support incarcerated individuals' right to vote, you can actually stand by the mantra, I am tough on crime. I'm tough on crime because I support humanity. I support individuals improving their social and political understanding and conflict resolution processes in order to be able to not have to be in the conditions that led them to be there. So the two are not irreconcilable. One, it's how we understand them. And two, we need to begin to change the narrative. What does tough on crime mean? And do you want to be tough on crime? Or do you want to be fair for humanity and pro-human? How does this get done? Yes, it would require change to the Ohio Constitution at the state level. Um, each state, it may be different. Here in Ohio, we would have to change the Constitution because we do have a bar on incarcerated individuals um, voting. And the state house would have to take it up and properly pass it or it would go through the ballot initiative process. So I know you've talked with legislators uh, about this issue, Donald. Uh, what kind of ear do you get from them? What, what kind of response do you get to the concept? When I first started reaching out to legislators, it was the end of last year. And so the legislative cycle was winding down. And I received responses in the nature and ilk of, it's not our priority as of right now, which I understood because it was a few months left in the calendar year and also the legislative year. I'm not interested, not right now, doesn't align with the member's interests. And that was just a handful of members, 10, 15 members or so, when I first started to reach out to them. I do have a piece of draft legislation which proposes to amend Section 1 and to repeal Section 4 of Article 5 of the Constitution of the State of Ohio, which would expand the elective franchise for people who are, for those who are convicted of felonies, and to give people who are involuntarily confined the right to vote using an absent voter's ballot. So that much was able to, to be accomplished. One of the representatives had submitted a request to LSC, and I have a draft joint resolution. Now it's just a matter of finding a sponsor who's willing to introduce the bill and give hope a chance. That's the only thing that we're asking for at this point in time, at least to have a discussion and to begin to hear from the stakeholders and community members about this issue. So a major success at this point, knowing that this is incremental, would be to get legislation uh, introduced and start having hearings or start having conversations, public conversations uh, about your your theory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like there are a number of advocacy groups who would, would, would love to be heard on this issue, formerly incarcerated individuals. Let's even hear from correctional officers. Let's hear from everyone in the system one way or another, because this will be a way to begin to engage people. If our purpose is rehabilitation and corrections, people often forget that Ohio Department of Rehabilitations and Corrections does have the word rehabilitation there, and they just focus on corrections. What are you correcting? 
I would argue neither are being done. Instead, they should just change it to ODP, Ohio Department of Punishment, if that's our goal. And so at least it begins to hear from the COs what's happening inside. Well, it's not, this doesn't release anyone. It won't change circumstances immediately. It recognizes their humanity and also begins to say at all points in time, we recognize that life isn't just, the world's not fair. You, you are held accountable in some way, shape, or form for your actions, but at the same time, you do get to still be part of the process which resolves conflict and which helps propel hope and humanity forward. I noticed that in some of the literature I was reviewing before we had this conversation, uh, that not only have there been efforts to get prisoners the right to vote, but also to lower the voting age to 16. Can you talk about the the philosophy of why those two have been joined? Yes. the We talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. And so they've been joined so that we can address the school-to-prison pipeline. We, we Both sections or both segments of the population younger adults right around the age of beginning like 14, 15, but 16 at that sweet spot, you're either a junior or a senior preparing for college or to go into a trade, whatever's next in life, take a job, trying to figure things out. You're concerned about these grander affairs and larger problems in life. And you may or may not have guidance, the same, your same individuals who may or may not end up within a correctional institution very similar similar mindset. And what do you do about it? How do you direct and channel and be part of the conversation about the world you want to live in, the tools that you need, what you hope to see, and what you hope to achieve? I think it's because how we view politics is, yes, politics is business, and we build uh, our political systems and institutions around corporations and entities and markets, and it makes sense to, to some extent. But building community in of itself is an institution and is a market. And giving individuals who are 16-year-olds saying, your, your voice matters, you have a say-so in the process, begins to shape their mindset in how they actually participate, socialize, and interact with their fellow neighbor and their friends and their family members to work to achieve the goals and to build lasting, meaningful, um, sustainable change and to redirect them instead of going from school to prison, from school in order to build a better community and, and into a better world. So it is seen and recognizing there are two suffering populations here. There are two unheard populations. Our problems are becoming wicked, meaning complex, bigger, more intricate. And we do need to recognize that it is going to take the energy, the tenacity, and the recognition of younger individuals to be able to be part of the process in order to move this forward. Would the number of if prisoners were given the right to vote and 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds were given the right to vote, are there sufficient numbers that you could see that might have changed certain elections or uh, some issues that may have been on the ballot in, in the past? At once, If one state was to do it and at the state level, no. At the national level, depending on if we were to say everyone who's incarcerated is part of or will be aggregated into an electoral college vote, then you may be able to make shifts in like the presidential election or make shifts at 
in Congress, but statewide, no, because the number of incarcerated individuals, while very large in of itself in the state of Ohio, uh, there was a study that was done about five years ago, uh, which stated it would take close to uh, well over 100% of the population, meaning double the size of the population that are currently incarcerated, to shift a statewide election. So again, it, it won't change the election one way or another, it won't get rid of the supermajority one way or another, but it does begin to say this is a constituency you can tap into. Now, if you know, a race is tight and it's on the margin or on the fringe, possibly it could change a vote. That's always a possibility and the upset candidate or a candidate who runs as an underdog who pulls it off, but that I can think of, no. However, I also have not looked at every single state election or local election to definitively be able to say that the incarcerated population would or would not be able to make or break that election. But this is a national effort since only two states now allow prisoners to vote, and I don't know of any state that allows 16, 17-year-olds to vote. This would be a, a national push. It would, starting right here in Ohio. And there are cities around the country that does allow 16-year-olds to vote. And so cities are have begun to make the move to allow them to vote in local elections. However, there are no states as of current. But even here in Ohio, you can register to vote when you're 17, if you'll be 18 by the time the general election comes. Also, Ohio revised code does allow for, which I, to my knowledge, I'm not sure if any municipality has taken advantage of this um, un- little known provision to create and host mock elections for those who are not of voting age at the same time at the general election to begin to train them and incentivize them to vote when they do turn 18. One last thing, Donald, and that is a lot of what you've been talking about in the literature and uh, in the vernacular is called restorative justice. And, you know, we live by buzzwords and buzz phrases in, in society. And at first blush, that sounds like one. But let me give you a chance to define what that means, or is there a definition, or is it individual? And if so, what does that mean to you? I'm reminded of a quote by W.E.B. Du Bois, and he's stated that, and I'm paraphrasing, until we view history, and specifically he was referring to the institution of slavery, from both the perspective of the slave and the slave master, will we not have a complete view of history and of what occurred? So if we want to have justice in of itself, although we're calling it restorative justice, we need to view situations and incarcerated persons, stories and facts and circumstances in the context in which they occurred, why are they there? What happened? What was their thinking? I'm not saying not to have accountability measures, but I'm saying in order to have justice, in order to have restorative justice, we have to build a society that says, but for the grace of God, go I. That says, 
yes, you're held accountable for your actions, but at the same time, we live in a world of asymmetrical information. We leverage information. Knowledge is power, and what you don't know can and likely will hurt you. So depending on where you were born in the genetic lottery will determine your likelihood to succeed. It doesn't define it, but it does determine it. So in order to be a society of law and order, to have a society where there is a rule of law, we have to have restorative justice. Restorative justice is examining every case, every story, every incarcerated person's life journey, every 16-year-old, where they are and where they hope to go. From the standpoint of what is it that they know? What is it that they hope to achieve? What is it that we know that they may not know or that we know they don't know that we've been able to identify? Restorative justice is building the fabric and unity of humanity. Donald, thank you so much for talking with us and and educating us about this issue that most people don't think about and most people don't know about. And I appreciate your time and and your expertise in this area. And best of luck to you in your endeavors. I, I think they're very worthwhile. And uh, I, I hope you succeed. Thank you so much, Tom. And I just want to leave everyone with saying, especially if you are here in Ohio listening, you can go to the Correctional Institutional Inspection Committee, CIIC's website, Google it, use whichever search browser you would like, and look at the reports. The reports will paint a story. Read them, not the outcomes of is it a fair, good determination, and you will begin to sense what's happening within our very institutions in the state. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Donald. Today's guest has been attorney and prison reform advocate Donald Wiggins, who has talked about upgrading correctional facilities and giving prisoners the right to vote. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, you can send them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.